This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here today for now with just David Canfield. Hello, David. Hi, Katie. We've been left stateside as Richard and Rebecca jet off to Cannes. You'll hear from both of them later on. Before they left, we uh, all sat down for a preview of the Cannes Film Festival, which is kicking off uh, this week. As you hear this, some of the films have already premiered. There's a lot to get into. Uh, we'll get there with Richard and Rebecca, who will be watching it all happen on the ground. And they'll be uh, checking in from Cannes next week so we can hear more about what's been going on over there. Um, but before that, there is news still happening in the United States, especially uh, the writer strike, which continues onward and has started to affect actual award shows already. We've talked about it throughout uh, on the show because it's what we focus on about the ways that it could affect the Emmys um, and the, it already did affect the uh, MTV Movie and TV Awards. Uh, it has now canceled the Peabody Awards, which were supposed to happen on June 11th, and will alter in some way the Tony Awards. As we record this on Tuesday, this morning that they announced that they basically struck a deal with the WGA so that the Tonys could happen. Um, they'll have to change the show in some way, and it's unclear what. Although my guess is that Ariana DeBose is the host, probably won't have writers to put together a flashy opening number. Um it makes more sense to me that the Tonys would go forward. They are really important financially to Broadway, and I think that's something the WGA would be aware of, uh, whereas the Peabody's, are, I think, are a little bit different. Um, but, David, does this division make sense to you, and does it feel uh, ominous to you as it does to me about what might happen with the Emmys? It does. Um, the whole rationale for saving the Tonys, essentially, is that they are not Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. And that, to your point, this is a community desperately in need of recovery the tonys are a huge part of that um and while there are commercial you know corporate issues with broadway of course there's a lot more sympathy for the state of that industry right now and so i think this is the right approach i think it's appropriate um it's such a difficult issue for the guild and i know it's not easy for them to even come to a deal like this but i think it also shows that they would not make any similar concessions <laughs> for the Emmys. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the fact that the Peabody's have gone this direction and what we saw with the MTV Awards and the fact that things might get worse before they get better with other guilds yeah, tells me that, yeah, this is an ominous moment for the next three months, a.k.a the function of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we contain multitudes, David. We can talk about lots of other things. So many things. Movies, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, I mean, the the financial import of the Tonys, it's not like I'm not jealous of it because I am glad that Hollywood is in a little bit better shape than theater. But I love that the Tonys are really such a huge advertisement for Broadway and that they're so important that way. And that is part of um, what this deal recognizes. I also love the saltiness of the WGA statement um, about how the Tonys are going forward. Responsibility for having to make changes to the format of the 2023 Tony Awards rests squarely on the shoulders of Paramount CBS and their allies. They continue to refuse to negotiate a fair contract for the writers represented by the WGA. Uh, Scorched Earth, man, they are not giving, <laughs> giving an inch right now. And nor should they. I mean, th- that's the nature of this. The fact that this is being broadcast on a major network, you know, one of the studios that is of the primary source of contention for them. So, you know, yeah, certainly within their rights to put out a statement like that. Yeah. So with the Peabody Awards, that's kind of less of a of a large scale event. And a lot of the nominees very specifically are WGA members. You've got TV shows like Abbott Elementary in Atlanta nominated like it is so within Hollywood. Like it's a bummer. Like I hope that they all get to celebrate being Peabody Award winners. But that's a ceremony that like the minute you realize when it was supposed to happen, it's like that that couldn't have gone on. Yeah. Um, It's a different kind of ceremony, too, um, talking about Emmys or or Tonys and their impact on the productions. The Peabody's are really, um, they're a more intimate kind of ceremony. They're more, they're incredibly respected within the community, but they don't have that kind of public facing value. Um, So it's it's a bummer. But because of that, it, it, there was really no way for it to go on, I think. Yeah. Um, So I'm going to ask you a question live that I don't know the answer to, which is usually (laughs) we've discussed to some extent. But, you know, thinking about the Peabody's that writers not coming, we talked last week about how doing public facing events is basically not going to happen for writers, but that the rules around everybody else and what other interviews are possible were fuzzier at that point. I mean, this week we're both busy doing a variety of interviews. Does it feel like there's some more clarity happening about who can do press and what or is everything still feel as chaotic as it did last week to you? It's funny that you're asking me that right now because I've been working on a few interviews um, with folks who are in the WGA and they've seemingly gone forward for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of trepidation about what they can and should say. Yeah. I I don't know that there's much more clarity on that. I I think that there's such a range of projects that are always out. There are really small movies. There are, you know, TV shows that are, you know, groundbreaking or you know, fought for years to get them made and their chance to survive and thrive rests in part on promotion. Um, And so for the writers, it's a really, really tough negotiation just for themselves. Um, And I'm encountering the same level of fuzziness and also individual choice. And I think that's really what it comes down to. Um, As as I was a couple weeks ago, I don't know that that will ever change. I don't think the WGA can tell people explicitly as part of their guidelines and rules for the strike that you cannot promote anything ever like that's just not going to be feasible so yeah uh this may be a gray area that doesn't you know darken or lighten (laughs) anytime soon yeah and that's similar to a listener question we got from lauren just you know asking if campaigning isn't happening much it seems likely to me that the better known shows and stars would have the edge since lesser known performances wouldn't get attention and that seems to be the logic that some people are using like even if they're in the wj and even if they're on strike it makes sense to try to give their shows a spotlight and i think doing that without necessarily giving an inch to the studios feels possible and that's the vibe I'm getting, at least from 
uh, from actors who maybe had you know, people had been considering canceling interviews before. It seems like there's there's more sense that the promo is worth it for um, the shows that they've already made. Yeah, I think the the comedy series race is an interesting case study in in that regard um, because you have two shows that I think are kind of on the bubble for breakout freshman showing, uh, Poker Face and Shrinking, mm-hmm. both of which have their leads in the WGA as part of the writing staffs of those shows, Jason Siegel and Natasha Leone. Um, and the press that they've done since this has been kind of spotty. Uh, yeah. I think that and it's, a di- again, it's a difficult thing. Uh, we know that a shrinking panel was, um, you know, did not have Bill Lawrence or Jason Siegel on it for FYC. Um, and I believe Natasha Leone has not really done anything uh, since the strike. So that would impact those shows and then the way that they can um, compete. And especially when you have a lot of heavy hitters in the comedy races, uh, some of which are maybe a little bit worn, like a marvelous Mrs. Maisel, um, they can stay ahead as long as uh, it's, it's a little bit easier for them to get out there. If only because people have been watching those shows for years. Yeah. And they can figure out how to thread that needle. Um, For anyone who didn't hear Jason Siegel on last week's episode, last week's, um, interview episode of Little Gold Men, you can kind of hear him threading that needle in real time, like talking about his work on the show as an actor and not getting into the writing aspect of it. And I thought that was a really interesting example of how how people can figure that out and not um, feel like they're doing wrong by the WGA. I thought he did a great job. Yeah, I thought so too. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from. Whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire. But when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Well, David, some of the interviews we have been able to do that I think have been incredibly satisfying, and you've done many more of them than I have, but I wanted to basically plug the series that you were spearheading on VF.com called Always Great, which is a very broad title, but is kind of the phrase that you cannot uh, stop resorting to when talking about the people who are part of this series. Um, do you want to talk about the concept behind it? Sure. It's it's my excuse for talking to my favorite actors who don't get enough attention for an hour piece. Uh, no, it's it's it's... I think a really uh, appropriate column and series for Emmy season because you have TV shows with huge ensembles um, and that includes maybe a small handful of series regulars and then a ton of recurring and guest stars, oftentimes who have been recurring guest stars for many decades <laughs> uh, in, in the case of a lot of the folks who we featured. Um, it's it's a series that I think is meant to recognize what makes a lot of our favorite shows and even movies what they are, uh, even if we don't realize it in the specific project. But we've talked to people like um, Zahn McLaren, who has you know been, in my opinion, the best part of Fargo and Westworld. Uh, and he wasn't really a name to anybody uh, until this year when he finally had a lead 
in the AMC series Dark Winds, and uh, he's been a part of Reservation Dogs. Yeah, he's a big showcase episode on that show, right? Yeah, he has this standout episode in Reservation Dogs where he just gets to show this wildly absurd and funny side of himself. And if you know the Westworld or Fargo arcs that I'm talking about, that's not something he's gotten to do very often. And so the impetus for a lot of these features is actors getting to show something new. Mm-hmm. Um, another one of my favorites was was Stephen Root. Yeah. Who, you know, I grew up with on King of the Hill. People grew up with on stuff like Office Space or his sitcom News Radio. He was actually, he's a Shakespearean trained actor. This guy is mm-hmm. not the sort of sitcom uh, grind origin story that you might think he is. And uh, he did Joel Cohen's Macbeth uh, a couple of years ago. And in Barry, it's the first role where he's gotten to kind of play the comedy and the tragedy uh, that he's kind of used throughout his career. And obviously with that show coming to the to an end, it's been a really meaningful full circle moment for him. Um, but yeah, you had a wonderful conversation with Elizabeth Marvel that I'm excited to read. Rebecca talked yeah. to Jennifer Ely, who was, uh, she may, she may not know this, but she was kind of the, uh, the impetus for, for this column when <laughs> someone mentioned she was great in something. And I said, she's always great. Yep. And then here we are months later with uh, a range of really wonderful actors. Uh, I think getting the spotlights they deserve and, and too rarely get. I think we've said that if you got these people, if you got all of them like together at a round table off the record, because, you know, no one wants to like really spill the gossip on the record, but they would have the best stories in Hollywood bar none. Like they have all been everywhere. They have worked with everyone. They have seen it all. And the fact that so many of them like are still working um, means that they have been good to work with and that they can kind of endure the the craziness that comes with not being a star in Hollywood and but being reliable and being kind of brought in as a utility player for so many different things. You joked that we have to have a Venn diagram of uh, <laughs> how all of these actors connect to each other because quite a few of them, for example, came up in, you know, 90s New York theater scene. Mm-hmm. Like we just talked to Justin Kirk, who uh, is on the latest Succession episode. We launched the series with Hope Davis and they were in a, you know, small theater company together with, with Jason Smith Cameron. Cameron. <laughs> uh, and uh, Jason Smith Cameron posted a photo of the three of them together. You know, it's it's these kinds of stories that yeah, that get that come alive in the in these uh, profiles that I always find very satisfying. Yeah, so everyone should go uh, catch up on the series. It will be uh, rolling on through Emmy season, and I mean, I don't think we're ever going to run out of people who every time they pop up on screen, you're excited to see them. So I feel like there's a lot of life in it. Yet oh, I'm, I'm already getting ready for I'm already getting ready for Oscar season. Rest <laughs> assured. I mean, always you're always getting ready for Oscar season. <laughs> True. Um, we should loop back to Stephen Root for a moment and Barry, because you know we've talked a lot about Succession. Everyone's talked a lot about Succession. You did with Justin Kirk, um, but Barry is continuing its own final season run and um, scaring the hell out of people. Also, I didn't watch. Sunday's Barry yet. I don't know if I emotionally could have after a succession and how um, horrifying it was, but um, it's really uh, on top of its game still, right? Yeah. I love that this show, it's just so audacious. <laughs> it, you know, I think the succession final season and this playing back to back are really interesting because with succession, I don't want to say there's like a level of inevitability to it, but the execution of it is very like pristine and explosive. Whereas with Barry, uh, and spoilers, I would say, through episode six, uh, for those who haven't seen, there's this turn, you know, at the midpoint of the season, this final season, that I was convinced was a dream. I was like, there's no yeah, way they're doing yeah, There's no were. way they're doing this. And not only do they commit to it, but it folds back into what the show was at the beginning in this really wonderful and surprising way. And it, it, it threads the darkest and the most absurdist and funny elements of the show 
in a way that feels very true to what it's always been. Uh, we've joked for years about the fact that this is still competing as a comedy. I've laughed a lot this season. Um, mm. uh, having not seen the end of the series, I'm absolutely no idea <laughs> what we are in store for. And that's a wonderful <laughs> feeling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, with Succession, like, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about where they're headed and how dark it's going to go. But, you know, it, it, it operates within the rules of reality in a way that Barry just feels like it can do anything, like absolutely anything can happen on that show. And to keep up that energy and sense of surprise um, this far into the show is really incredible. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the beauty of, of serialized television. And it's something that we haven't gotten as much of lately as limited series have been uh, on the rise and shows have been prematurely canceled more frequently. Like this is, this is what it's about. And um, yeah, with succession, you're not going to end up with Kendall and, you know, Shiv in the desert 10 years later. With, oh my <laughs> with God. A, but what if, holy like the, moly, <laughs> what, what if, but, but it's, it's unlikely. It's unlikely. Whereas with Barry, yeah. it's like, you know, you, your brain is trained to be like, absolutely not. And then it's like, of course, this makes sense. Yep. And, and you understand yeah. the role Sally is playing in this environment. And you understand the tragedy of what the role Barry is playing with his son <laughs> and how traumatic yeah. and horrifying this is. Um, and then you kind of get a, a sense for how this epilogue can bring the show back to its roots. Um, I think Bill Hader has really done something pretty um, pretty remarkable here. Even if it's not to everyone's taste, it's it's just the boldness of it that I remain pretty knocked out by. Um, if I'm too stressed out by Barry and Succession, should I finally start watching somebody somewhere? That seems like a um, like not a not the happiest show, but maybe a palate cleanser from all this uh, incredible darkness. I haven't been, you know, following how it's done. I did see a headline that the ratings are are pretty good, which makes me happy because I was going to say I hope this isn't a third final season airing on HBO on yeah. Sunday nights right now. Um, but it is a quieter show. It's not going to generate the attention that Barry or Succession, but it's it's advertised itself this season as a, as a platonic romance um, between Bridget Everett's character who has moved home uh, to Kansas to kind of find happiness. She's very adrift. Uh, she's grieving the loss of a sister. Um, and this gay man she meets in town who she, she knew from her, her, you know, from her childhood there from when she lived there. Uh, and they strike up this irresistible bond. Um, and this season it's, it's challenged and it's, given the full treatment of a couple t being tested in the new stage of their relationship. Ironically, it's partly because they each, you know, maybe have a romantic prospect to challenge that. Um, but it's mm. just a really sweet, beautifully shot, really tenderly observed show um, that feels exactly like uh, the kinds of independent movies that we are not getting much of anymore. It's no coincidence that the Duplass brothers are very involved Jay Duplass mm. directs a number of the best episodes of this season, including, uh, no spoilers, the series, the season, not series finale, <laughs> the season finale, <laughs> let's hope. Um, and I think it's it's gotten a really nice treatment from HBO, and I do hope that more people are watching and that you can even find some Emmy success, oh, maybe. Mm. Well, we were talking about how lower key shows maybe need more of a boost in the strike environment. So it seems like the best we can do, right, is to um, to give them that boost ourselves. Yeah, we've got to enjoy all the good TV all lasts uh, until writers are compensated fairly. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. Well, now let's go back to the conversation that David and I had with Richard and Rebecca before they headed off to Cannes um, for a pretty, a pretty thorough rundown of what to expect from this year's festival and what we're looking forward to and some bold predictions of what will win the Palme d'Or, which if our Oscar predictions are any indication, we will not get right. But, you know, there's a first time for everything. 
So now it's time for us to look ahead to the Cannes Film Festival. Richard and Rebecca, as we record this, you are about to take off. As people hear this, you will be in France um, and Cannes will be a little bit underway. But at this point, we're really just looking into the future and um, it's looking like a pretty good Cannes year. How excited are you guys feeling right now? I finally got excited. The schedule came out. <laughs> you did? <laughs> yeah. It's always is that nail biter because you have to book the travel before you know what's even going to be there. And then they announce the films that you don't know what the schedule is. And you're like, did I book enough time? Is something going to premiere after I leave? Things seem to have sort of fallen into place. Um, so that's exciting. But um, yeah, the, but the lineup itself, I mean, when it was announced, I think everyone was immediately, uh, yes, we had suspicions confirmed about the Scorsese movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, but also surprised by by some of the things that both showed up and didn't. Um, but I, yeah, I think it looks like a pretty strong lineup. Rebecca, how are you feeling? I, I do think the lineup is exciting. I think I feel like I always have this pressure where I want to see whatever is going to end up being the hidden gem of the festival. And you just don't know what that's going to be, you know, looking yeah. at the lineup. I, I think a lot about After Sun last year. So, I have just been like pouring over this schedule because you have to look beyond the sort of main lineup to see what else might be hidden in there. Yeah, so we're, this will be airing on Thursday as people hear this and the festival will be underway. And Richard, looking at the schedule you've made, it looks like uh, one of the films that I would assume people are anticipating highly, uh, Corietta's Monster, will have already premiered. Um, so we're going to keep a close eye on that one, right? Oh, yeah. Always have to keep a close eye on him. Um, you know, he won the Palm a few years ago for Shoplifters. Um, Broker, his last feature there didn't fare quite as well um, for, I think, a variety of reasons. I think it had trouble getting U.S. distribution and pandemic things and also with subject matter a little bit. But this one sounds intriguing. I don't really know what it's about. It's got a pretty grabby title and a title that, you know, his movies are usually pretty gentle. But the title Monster, I mean, that sounds like something different. Yeah, I believe it's about... A mother confronting a teacher over her son's behavior and sort of uh, what the teacher did because the teacher did something. <laughs> so it sounds interesting. Um, that's that's what I know of it. Another of his sort of social dramas, you know, like he's really good about like exploring people who live on the fringes or have sort of made decisions that put them on the outs of whatever community they're in. Like he's, he's a very compassionate studier of people. Uh, and so, yeah, something like that, you know, we, we, there's a lot of talk about what teachers are or not doing, uh, you know, are oh, or are not doing right now. So maybe that'll be feel pretty relevant. So he's a previous Palm winner in the competition. We've also got Ken Loach, who has the old oak. I feel like he's someone you can't really... Um, even if his films are not like big blockbusters and on the art house circuit, like he's a he's a palm favorite returning this year too, right? Yeah, he's won twice. So wow, he's in the very small group of two time winners. Um, I feel like the Cannes audience really loves his films. I mean, you know, as we say, it's always up to the jury, and and they're different every year. But I I do think he, I mean he's a Cannes favorite, so it's definitely worth paying attention to. I think he also said it is his last film. Right? I think so, yeah. So that's also very significant. What if it's like a memoir? Ken Loach, The Old Oak. <laughs> he, he is the old oak. <laughs> He's the old oak. <laughs> he is the old oak. Yeah. That's, um, Rebecca, that's a bad do you, joke. Do you want to walk us through the jury you, you're talking about? I mean, it's in terms of like how the films will be received at Cannes, it doesn't really matter. You know, the films will be the films. But it, it, if you want to talk about awards, which of course we always do on this podcast, the jury makeup is a very uh, major factor. Yes. So it's being led by Ruben Ostland, who uh, won last year with Triangle of Sadness. Obviously, we're all very familiar with his films and his taste, which are satirical. And he 
he always talks about how he likes audiences to feel a certain way when they go into his movies. So I wonder if he's looking for that experience as well from his films. But um, the rest of the jury is, um, it includes Paul Dano and Brie Larson, who have also been filmmakers. So I think they'll probably have an interesting taste um, when it comes to what they're looking for as well. Um, and then, and Julia DeConnell, who is also a Palm winner, who also has kind of bold out their taste, like Gurman Uslan. That's an interesting combination of filmmakers to lead the jury. Yeah, and she is one of only two women that's ever won. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't think that is something she's going to factor in, but I do think that's interesting that that is still sort of this ceiling that is, seems to be difficult to break with um, when it comes to awards. Given Oslin's style in his films, and I guess that would probably speak to his preferences and what he likes, um, and also to Cornell, like there is uh, Jessica Hausner in the main competition uh, with her film Club Zero. Uh, mm. A few years ago, her her weird sci-fi thriller with a pretty grim ending called Little Joe won Best Actress for Emily Beecham. And now Hausner is back in the main competition uh, with this film with um, Mia Wasikowska that's billed as a sort of drama thriller. So I don't know. And it's an elite school. And I don't know. I feel like that could maybe be something that that Oastland or maybe Ducournau or somebody would would kind of gravitate toward. And that would be, you know, if if, if a female director is in the running, um, I you know, she has momentum. Uh, Hausner does. Also, Mia Wasikowska, like, is really selective about her work. She doesn't work that much. So I'm, I'm excited yep. to see her in something. And if it's good, I think that could be a really uh, interesting watch. Yeah. I mean, the last time I saw her was, I think, Bergman Island, which shot so much, you know, so far before when it came out. So uh, I'm very excited to see her lead a movie like this. Didn't you interview her to talk about Mia Hansen Love, David? She's like very hard to track down. She was in the bush in Australia. (laughs) She was an absolutely delightful interview. And yeah, it was quite a journey tracking her down. So... I don't know if she's going, but maybe she will make an appearance. She's also talked a lot about a really conscious choice to leave Hollywood behind and some difficult experiences she had uh, with the Alice in Wonderland breakout and just kind of feeling very far from the circus that went around all that. So um, this might also represent the kinds of choices she wants to make going forward. So if we're looking at filmmakers who maybe push the envelope and might get the story's attention, uh, Richard and Rebecca, I know you guys are excited about Jonathan Glazer and what he might have in store at this year's Cannes. Yeah, there are a lot of heavy movies at Cannes. So a nice romance film like Zone of Interest, I think, will be a nice palate cleanser. Oh, wait, what's that I'm seeing? Oh, it's uh, about what? Auschwitz guards falling in love? Oh, okay. Oh, Dude, sorry. I'm I too gullible for, for this nonsense. <laughs> I, I didn't read far enough down in the plot description. I think I've already made that joke on this podcast. But yes, it is definitely going... It's based on a Martin Amis novel. It's about a Nazi officer falling in love with his commander's wife at Auschwitz. So pretty heavy subject matter. Risque subject matter brings to mind maybe The Reader, which won Kate Winslet an Oscar. I cannot um, imagine Jonathan Glazer making a movie that looks or sounds anything like The Reader. <laughs> no, certainly not. He, uh, Stephen Daldry, he is not. Um, but, you know, Glazer has made very few films. Um, his last film was Under the Skin 10 years ago with Scarlett Johansson, which is, you know, on a lot of, like, best movies of the of the new century lists. Um, so this one is hotly anticipated. Um, but it's arriving in a very charged political climate, both in France and abroad. And so I'll be curious to see, you know, Cannes has a long history of awkward encounters related to Nazism, mm. <laughs> thinking back to Lars von Trier and various things. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll be curious uh, how that movie plays. But it's definitely like the one that a lot of real like cinephiles have at the top of their list. 
Rebecca, what's at the top of your list? Is May December the Todd Haynes film? I'm I'm my expectations are high, which makes me nervous all the time. But <laughs> but um, I just, you know it's Natalie Portman. She's playing this actress who I love when actors are playing actors, and she goes to study this real life woman she's going to play, who's played by Julian Moore. And I just feel like the acting performances are bound to be so interesting and. And I hope it's a, a, a Todd Haynes film that I like fall in love with. So I'm I'm really hopeful it's in competition and it doesn't have a distributor yet. So um, I think Natalie Portman's company produced it. So I'm I'm really uh, curious about it and hopeful. Todd Haynes is a can mainstay, you know, and yeah. um, I think it's it's a home for him. Um, and maybe there would have been more strategy in releasing this movie at Venice. More, you know, to get, really get it on that award circuit. But I think Can has been so supportive of his work in the past. Obviously, Carol was a big winner um, in its year. Um, he's had a documentary most recently. Wonderstruck was a bit of a, an oddity on his resume. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, this is, I mean, May, December, it's like, if nothing else, Rebecca and I are going to France to see that movie, which is, you know, <laughs> re- reason enough. And the possibility of it being picked up by a distributor there and right. making a fall release, I think, is a really smart uh, Seems plan. pretty likely, right? Yeah. It feels like that's why it wouldn't go to Venice or do that circuit, because it probably would need a little bit more runway to not have to rush things. Um, but yeah, that seems like... Uh, let me let me ask as someone who's never been to Cannes, um, <laughs> you know, with other festivals, scheduling can say... Um, how a festival feels about a movie. This one's premiering pretty late on the same night as Killers of the Flower Moon. That Does that say anything to you guys about confidence in it, lack thereof? Because I, I th- I, it just caught my eye. My hunch there is that both May, December and Killers of the Flower Moon have pretty A-list talent in them, and those people are hard to wrangle. Mm-hmm. And maybe a weekend was just the only time they could be in Cannes. Hmm. You know? um, Do you remember scheduling conflicts like this in years past? I think oftentimes that's, I mean, it's also just in terms of audiences, but I think that first weekend is loaded because for that reason, you know, it's like, well, I have to go back on set on Monday or whatever it is, you know, so could we do a Friday, Saturday, maybe Sunday's, you know, premiere? Um, Maybe that's how it works. Or Thierry Fromeau, the head of the festival, just wanted Saturday to be a real banger in the lead up Mm -hmm. to the VF party. You know, he's like, (laughs) I'm going to give you a Scorsese. That's what I was really getting at. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Saturday is the day, the 20th. So. Um, film Twitter will hopefully be a buzz, and then party Twitter is that a thing? Mm-hmm. You are. Yeah, right. <laughs> We're at the yes. party. Today. That's your job. Yeah. I mean, in terms of buzz, in terms of like the thing that everyone will inevitably be talking about. I mean, we're trying to pick out some hidden gems. Like, there's After Sun. There's Indiana Jones. Um, as I think, as people listen to this, it might have premiered already. What else is just kind of inevitable at this year's can? I mean, I mentioned Scorsese. Yeah. It's not in competition, um, I, although I think Fermo said that he like begged Scorsese to put it in competition because he's not had a movie in competition since After Hours in 1985. That's so. Why would he not want to? Because I, I think Scorsese's kind of a mensch, and I think he's like, I've, I've done, I'm done, I'm okay. I like, don't need the palm. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm okay. Um, but um, there's also the French Dispatch, Wes Anderson's last movie. I think did pretty well at Cannes in terms of reception. But then sort of fizzled out Oscar-wise and sort of in the American market. Granted, that was COVID and all that. But Asteroid City maybe represents more of a return to his sort of heartwarming whimsy. There was just a lot of, I thought, cold whimsy in French Dispatch. Um, This one's about kids, kind of similar to Moonrise Kingdom, which was great. 
Um, and this one has, you know, every star imaginable in it. Um, so if nothing else, we'll get some great, you know, press photo call images and, and red carpet photos. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. All right, so we talked about what's um, in the competition, kind of the big centerpiece things. Indiana Jones is out of competition as his killers. Um, what else, not in competition, maybe under the radar, should we be looking for? Well, there's always uncertain regard. Um, what does that mean? It means a certain regard. A certain regard. It's just a <laughs> phrase we all like what, to use. What, what does that I'm category, holding. what does it mean to be in that category? Usually it's a lot of um, up-and-coming directors, you know, okay. not necessarily first-time feature directors, although they do make a special note in the program if it's a first-timer. Um, it's just people they kind of want to put in the can ecosystem, you know, and the idea being that you have maybe one or two films in a certain regard, and then you move up to um, to the main competition like Lucas Don't did. He had Girl, which was a prize winner uh, in a certain regard a few years ago, and last year he had Close. Um, Hell or High Water premiered there. Uh, years ago oh, really yeah in that category which is kind of funny i think this year because it's newer film directors i'm not as you know familiar with a lot of oeuvres but um there's a, the grabby title of how to have sex which we've talked about on the podcast like that obviously you know put it on everyone's schedule but it's also british it's about british people on vacation much like after sun you know so i think that could be one to watch certainly for its title, but also what it's about, you know, um, it feels like a very contemporary look at uh, youth in the way that, you know, maybe Euphoria is for the United States. Oh, speaking of Euphoria, though, <laughs> what else is it can, Richard? Oh, speaking of Euphoria, we have the idol, Sam Levinson's HBO show that is premiering two episodes as if they were a film out of competition in the big theater Sign of the Times, one of the biggest premieres is a TV show. <laughs> mm. um, but, you know, say what you will about Levinson's output, but like Euphoria is cinematic to look at. So mm -hmm. I've never seen one of his, sh like that show on the big screen. So it'll be at least interesting to see Lily Rose Depp as a pop star and uh, Abel Tesfaye as uh, her kind of creepy manager and a host of other stars um, on the big screen. I really wonder how they decide on the TV series. I know Irma I know. was there last year. I mean, obviously, there's something about having Lily Rose Depp here when her father is opening the festival and the star power of this show. But I, I just wonder how they decide, like, yes, this TV show is cinematic enough to be a can. Yeah, and Irma Vep was, like, from Olivier Isaias, who's, like, yeah. such a, you know, legend of European cinema. So that one, I think, is a clearer, there's a clearer line to draw, whereas Sam Levinson... Yeah, it's <laughs> without getting to my opinions about Sam Levinson, it's it's more of a leap, I would say. I wonder if the A twenty four thing helps it. You know, like they're kind of I think it gold does, plated sure. right now. It's trendy, you know. Like he's a trendy maker of things, and um, that brings a sort of youthful attention to Cannes, which you know I think that festival is conscious of that. Um, certainly, mm -hmm. they they don't want to just be seen as stuffy and sort of you know here's the nineteenth film from 
this filmmaker to premiere her. They they want newer, fresher, cooler stuff to bring in, not younger audiences necessarily to the festival itself, but sort of eyeballs on on what they're what they're premiering. So that makes sense. And I also think that like maybe in a semi-ironic way, self-aware way, it it feeds into the sort of pretension that sort of surrounds that show already. You know, like this is supposed to be this seismic, shocking event, and where what better place to ruffle feathers? Mm. than on, you know, the Quasette. Mm-hmm. Um, one film that caught my eye on a si- in a sidebar is in the Critics Week, which is also sort of, I think, more for up-and-coming filmmakers. Um, it's from South Korea, and it's directed by Bong Joon-ho's former assistant. His name mm. is Jason Yu. Um, and it stars actors from Parasite and Train to Busan, and it's called Sleep, and then parentheses Jam, but apparently it's about newlyweds who like, I don't know, descend into madness after her, after the husband starts doing strange things while sleeping. It just sounds like the kind of like dark twisted thing that Bong Joon-ho's former assistant would make. So it might be something that surprises people. I love that. That's the kind of thing that like it's so hard to see ahead of time. If you're, you know, if you're us, but then you guys are going to be like, guess what? This is the person to watch. And you got like having a good hunch about that at this point is very fun. It's hard with so many sidebars to really like decide what we can see because obviously we have to prioritize some of the competition films and and bigger titles. But there's there's just so much here. It's just, there's so many treasures. I think it's a yeah. bit like when you read a review of a play and you're like, oh, that sounds good. Maybe I'll get tickets, and it's already sold out because the review was good. <laughs> it, sometimes it can when you hear about these smaller movies. You're like, oh, okay, when is it playing next? And you're like, oh, it's playing a day after I leave. <laughs> you know, so trying to be more on top of it this year, but it's hard. There's a lot in the special screening section this year. Um, Steve McQueen has a documentary, Occupied City. Mm -hmm. Um, The Pedro Moldovar short, Strange Way of Life, which I feel like I've been hearing about for years (laughs) with Ethan Hawke and Pedro Pascal, will finally premiere here. I'm very excited for that. Um, And you also have a Marin Cotillard film that's premiering in this section called Little Girl Blue. And a Kate Blanchett movie kind of quietly premiering, I think, in Fortnite. yeah. Um, I, I like to consider that the movie that made it very hard to schedule a cover interview with her. But, uh, <laughs> uh, go on, Richard. There it is. <laughs> Not that you're holding a grudge or anything. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, those sidebars, uh, Directors Fortnite, Critics Week, like, they are sort of affiliated with the festival. They're independent, but you can use your badge to see. Like, it, it's a, they have an interesting relationship. Um, and I know that at least Fortnite this year really was trying to do a lineup that was really seeking like new talent rather than taking some stuff that maybe didn't get into main competition or whatever. Um, so I think it, it's definitely will be worth my time to walk, you know, maybe the whatever quarter mile it is from, from the main theater to see some stuff there because there are, you know, there are big names lurking in, in those titles. Like Jacob Elordi has a film there that with Jeremy O'Harris um, that I'm, you know, pretty curious about actually, which was written by um, New York film critic circle member, Nick Pickerington. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, well, is it time for us to make some bold predictions? Um, maybe less insane than our year ahead Oscar predictions, but uh, the same spirit of chaos. Um, I've asked you all to just predict who's going to win the Palm d'Or. Why not? Maybe one of us will get it right and have bragging rights. But I'm going to make it's a Richard, smaller pool, a smaller <laughs> pool, and you'll find out much sooner uh, if you were right or not. Um, all right, Rebecca, you spoke first. I'm going to make you go first. Well, I don't know. The the jury trips me up this year, but I think I'm going to go with Ken Loach making history as the first three-time mm. Palm winner for his last movie, because I feel like that's a lot of interesting narratives that 
maybe it will matter. And, and he's a, you know, a very impressive filmmaker, so very um, consistent. So I'm going Ken Loach. All right, Richard, you'll also be there, so I'll make you go next. I have a long-standing tradition, not every year, but many years, of not seeing the Palm <laughs> Uh And uh, Alice Rohrwacher's new film, La Chimera, is premiering after I leave. So uh, it's on the last day, which might not be a great sign, although Kelly Reichardt's film showing up premiered on the last day last year. So there is hope. Um, this movie uh, features Josh O'Connor, Isabella Rossellini, and others. It's about the black market of archaeology. Um, and Rohrwacher, you know, we talked about her when she was nominated for, you know, live action short at the Oscars this year. She's a really interesting Italian director. Happy as Lazaro was her last big Cannes film, and that was great. I ended up on my top 10 list. And she's a weirdo, you know, and so I think maybe that those weirdo impulses will sink with Ruben Oslin's. Uh, I was going to pick that one. So I'm going to. I was too. <laughs> <laughs> Although I didn't know it was the last day. So, I mean, maybe I wouldn't have done it in that case. Well, that's that then. <laughs> uh, I might just, I'm just going to maybe get distracted by Star Problem. Why, why not May, December? Why not a Palm Noir for Todd Haynes? Like, I feel like he's someone who is, many people have been rooting for for a very long time. He's got great stars in it. It's got like a buzzy story that could be a little scandalous, but he's always got such style to the stories that he tells. Um, you know, if uh, if we're trying to balance between like daring and then like a little bit of a sentiment uh, in the storytelling, I feel like he's exactly the guy to do that. So May, December, why not? Uh, I'd be loath not to point out one potential dark horse, uh, which is a very VFE movie called Firebrand. Mm. Um, Elisa Vikander plays Catherine Parr, uh, Henry VIII's last wife. Jude Law's in it, Sam Riley. It's from an interesting director, a Brazilian guy. And I don't know, that's in the main competition. It could be something or it could be just some sort of stuffy costume drama. I don't know. It's also looking for distribution. So it could be something we see in the fall if it does well. So we'll see. David, you want to pick that one or are you going to go rogue? I'm going to go with the Jonathan Glazer. I feel like his sensibility aligns with this jury, particularly like I could see a Julia de Cornell really going for a Jonathan Glazer film. Um, and so given that we have the uh, La Chimera already selected, uh, I'll play a little jury math and, and go out on a limb there. Uh, well, we'll see. Actually, I think by our next episode, cancel won't be over. So we have two weeks to wait before we can um, reveal the results. So everybody stay tuned. Um, Richard and Rebecca, have fun out there. We uh, look forward to your next dispatch from, from a yacht. I think we've asked you. We sent you a microphone on a yacht. You have to go find it and record your next episode <laughs> from there. I still have not been on a yacht at Cannes. <laughs> okay. It's my ninth year. I just don't know why I can't get on a yacht party. <laughs> That's our mission. It's my ninth year, too. So for both of our ninths, we'll get okay. on a yacht or barring that. I'll find a way to fill a swimming pool with rosé. You know, oh, cool. All we right. can float in it like we're on a boat. <laughs> One way or another, we will get you over some, some sort of water. That does it for today's show. We'll be back next week. Richard and Rebecca will uh, bring us a dispatch from Cannes. We'll have lots of coverage of the festival and our party, of course. You can find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider, and on our own, I am at Katie Rich and David. David Canfield, 97. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the least appealing alternative to where you can be instead of the Vanity Fair Cannes party goes to Richard Lawson party twitter i'm chris murphy i'm richard lawson and i'm hillary busis we are from vanity fair's still watching podcast next up we're watching the new hbo show the regime madam chancellor 
Let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.